following discussion is not necessarily the views of all involved. The goal is to start open and honest discussion in the Christian worldview. Like all things, weigh what you hear with what you know and join us in our pursuit for the truth. Enjoy the podcast. I love the idea of like, the gods are in the sky and they can't get down. Don't get me started on Stop. pyramids. There's no mummies ever found in the pyramids. Stop. Look it up. I don't. I, I, this podcast won't become a conspiracy podcast. The Jedi Temple looks a lot like a ziggurat. Stop. For the uninitiated, the Borg cubes. No. Like, I need to do a biblical theology of the Borg cubes. <laughs> well, it wasn't about the Tower of Babel. It was about the Stargate at the bottom. All right. I'd like to welcome everyone to the Second Rate Saints podcast. I'm Caleb, and to my left is... I'm Joel, and to my left is... I'm Colton, and to my left is... I'm Josh. To my left is... It's, it's me. me. We're back. All the way around. Caleb. Joel, we have some social media stuff. Yeah, um, so you're now listening to the Second Rate Saints podcast, so I'd like you to check us out on our website, www.secondratesaints.com, or we're the same on Instagram, or uh, what else? We have a Twitter, but we don't really use it, yeah. so don't look for us on there. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then you can find us on any podcast platform that you're currently listening on or any others you'd like to listen to. Cool. Yeah, we're still trying to reach out, so if you could uh, send this to a friend or a family member or uh, an enemy, then I'd really appreciate that. Comment. Send us an email. Send you you are commanded to love your enemies, and yeah. this is a great way to show your love. Mm-hmm. Send them our podcast. And if we do a bad <laughs> job, it's a great way to get back at your enemies. <laughs> so. There you go. Yeah. We usually do a what have you read at the beginning of these episodes. And uh, I'm going to ask Colton, what have you read? Uh, I actually read a very interesting book. Uh, this one was actually recommended by uh, someone who listens to the podcast. An email. Yeah, so an email. An email yeah. And it was a very interesting interaction, one that I very much appreciated. But he recommended this book called Anarchy and Christianity by Jacques Ellul. I cannot pronounce his name for the life of me. You aren't French enough? No, I'm not French enough. Oh, okay. But the book is, I don't want to say apologia, because it's not quite like as harsh as that it's more trying to reconcile this idea of anarchy and christianity together and like anarchy is in that full-on political the political theory yeah not not the abolishment and like complete chaos kind of anarchy but the political movement of self-governance interesting not even libertarianism just like social anarchy the book starts with uh his introduction where he basically explains that his type of anarchy is one that's brought through nonviolence, uh, because Christ- Christians profess nonviolence. He takes it very extremely. Uh, pa- basic, just general pacifism. Interesting. So yeah. he's a he's a pacifistic anarchist. Well, that's the thing. By the end of the introduction, he explains that he does not believe that what he wants in terms of this. I don't. It, he doesn't believe in utopia. He's very grounded in that way, and he tries to profess this anarchy that could come about if people just start living their lives believing in it. If Christians started believing it and trying to live that way. He also acknowledges that that could never happen. Um, He he says that because Christianity is generally idealistic, this idea of that we we try to be good even though we can never become perfect, we try to do these things, so too we can we do this with anarchy. Um, As long as you're to live your best life growing anarchy, maybe one day we'll find some progress. But he doesn't think they'll ever fully come to be because power, it, it created power vacuum, someone else will take its place. Hmm. Despite that, he still gives reasons why we should believe it. He first talks to the anarchists, uh, saying why they should accept Christianity, because 
most anarchists, especially anarchists in his time, he, he wrote this around, um, I want to say the 60s. I can't remember originally. It, it might be a bit later than that. But he starts by talking about like socialism and uh, social anarchy, uh, syndicalism specifically, because he was a syndicalist for the longest time. Um, Do you want to define syndicalism? Syndicalism is the idea of the rule of uh, unions, of mm. unions of, uh, I might be generalizing it a bit because I think there's subcategories of that as there is with most political ideologies. Does it come from the word syndicate? I think so. I don't actually I, I don't actually know where the origins of that okay. word come from. But he basically describes, hey, uh, you anarchists, most of you are on the left, the vast, vast majority of you, left-wing uh, views, uh, Marxist, that kind of thing. Here's why Christianity isn't bad. And uh, he gives reasons like the professes nonviolence. We're always asking for nonviolence. This this idea of like every man has its own his own worth and that we like you have the right to do these things in the Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus professes these things. I think that a lot of the reasons he gives for why Christianity can be accepted in an anarchist's worldview are weak. He, again, he just kind of talks about how Christian ideals mesh well, despite the idea of like, because anarchists will be put off by the whole, the king who rules over. Christianity has been used as a bludgeon against anarchists and mm-hmm. other like social ideals and stuff like that for the longest time. It's seen as the prevalent force in the, in the West. Therefore, it's like an authority structure. He tries to deconstruct that. I don't think he does a very good job, but it's all right. It's his um, theology that's pretty bad. He tries to talk about uh, to Christians to accept anarchy. Mm-hmm. And he gives reasons like, uh, well, it's mostly negative apologetics. He tries to def- to um, defend against the critiques of like, hey, um, I know that Romans 13 says that God gives the, the powers... Um, the sword kind of thing, and they're from him. So when you attack the you attack the governments, you attack me. Yeah, they're extensions of his authority. Yeah, it's fairly obvious he has taken the Bible to fit his worldview rather than the other way around. Mm. He has to twist it around to, I don't want to go as far as saying mental gymnastics, but that's very much what it feels like. Mm-hmm. Uh, twist this the ideals of the Bible, say like, well, actually there, at this time there was this rising movement of the Persians in the East kind of thing. And so he's actually, when he says that the powers that be, whatever, don't fight against them, he's actually saying to align with them instead kind of thing. Um, therefore, it's not talking about that powers are from God, but rather that Christians should do this. It's interesting. He talks about that with Peter because Peter also mentions it. Jesus mentions to give unto Caesar, that kind of thing. I think that all of the theological points are incredibly weak. Is it just because of weak exegesis and like hermeneutics? I think there is no real exegesis here. Oh. Like his, he doesn't have a hermeneutical method. <laughs> it's just whatever's compatible. That's very much how it comes across, but I know he's smarter than that he definitely knows what he's talking about i just think he's very very wrong does he comment at all on old testament passages or does he like exclusively go with the new testament he mostly talks about just new testament old testament he minorly touches on but it it should also be mentioned that he is a socialist Mm -hmm. he he does believe very uh deeply in marxist and then also kirkegaardian ideas but he was also very heavily inspired by Karl barth interesting barth it's very interesting actually he wasn't originally a Christian, uh, this guy, uh, Jacques Elol. I'm still pronouncing it wrong. But he, was, he wasn't originally a Christian, 
but when he came to Christ, it did seem, I, I read up on it, he, it was a very powerful experience. Mm-hmm. And so he, rash, he tried to rationalize his already existing socialist views with the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it, I think that's fairly obvious. He was originally a Marxist exegete. He exegeted mm-hmm. Marxist stuff much like how uh, a theologian will exegete the Bible yeah. kind of thing. It was very popular in uh, actually yeah. ever since Marx's works first came out, but up until like World War One, it was super popular. Yep. It, it is, I think that he does a disservice to his Christian ideals by holding Marxist ones with them, simply because he holds them as, I don't want to say equal, but despite the fact that Marx is really not a Christian and really hates Christianity, he still holds them together. Uh, and I think that does a disservice and makes both sides weak. Bummer. Yeah. My personal opinion on the book, uh, he, he does a good job explaining what he means. I just think that his theology is really skewed. He Actually, his theology is very similar. We covered a book called um, Lies We Believe About God mm-hmm. by Paul Young. And while I was reading this book, I was very much reminded of the theology by Paul Young. And it seems that they come from the same, uh, God is loving of all things. He does not want to use us as tools. He does not want to rule over us, but have us as a relationship kind of thing. But he takes it very much to the political side, whereas uh, Paul Young doesn't really as much. And I think that that is part of the problem. Yeah, he's emphasizing certain characteristics of God over others. Yeah, very, very, very much so, um, and ignoring others. But um, I would ultimately give this book a, uh, I don't want to say a one out of five, uh, because he is a well, he is well read, and he's well written. Mm. He just is wrong, in my opinion. <laughs> and he, he exegetes very poorly. He also has very clear biases going into it. And to the fan that gave us this book, this is not a reflection of how no, we think no, no, of you. No, 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 of course. <laughs> <laughs> this is... For the yeah. fan who recommended this book, I actually had a great time reading it. Yeah. And it was very interesting. I got to look into a lot of this stuff. Um, maybe we came to a different conclusion than you did, but I very much, if you do, are listening to this, I'd love to hear what you have to say about what I've said. Yeah. And we can talk about it. And if, if other fans have uh, recommendations... For books. Yeah, let us know. I'll read it. We, we'll we read it. We'll, we might even feature them on the episode. Yep. And there's a good chance I'll probably agree with it. <laughs> just, just in general? This one seems to be the exception. Dude, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'm just going to start pushing whatever books near Colton, and he's yeah. just going to have to agree. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> it's going to be on our review page. Yes, I'm going to write a yeah. review uh, on our website. Go check it out. The thing about you, though, is that you're compelled to read something when you disagree with it. That's also true. I... I'm ready to read about half of a book before I can put it down and say, you know what? I disagree with these guys' points. I'm not going to read anymore. <laughs> I do not understand your ability to just sit there and be like, this is this is wrong, but I'm going to keep reading. This is bad stuff. <laughs> when I, it's just like, I, 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 I admire that, but man, it's difficult for me. Here's the thing, Joel. When I pick up a book, I have to finish it. Yeah, I'm the I same way. I cannot. I finish so few books. I, like, I don't review them on the podcast unless I've actually finished them, so yeah. don't start questioning that, but yeah. my goodness, it's hard to finish <laughs> books sometimes. Yeah. I think there's value in learning what other, the opposite views I disagree with are. Exactly. I'm not saying that, I'm not saying you don't do that, obviously, but it, because a book's quite long to do, to put up with that for, mm-hmm. but I like to read it so that it either reinforces or changes my worldview. I don't mind reading books of a contrary opinion. If they're well written and articulated, this but, guy's not mean spirited. Yeah, in any that, way. that's great. 
But I have Colton. I'm more talking to Colton in this oh. regard. There are books that I get about a quarter of the way through and then go, eh, and then leave it. And Colton will still pick it up and you go, this is good stuff. This is the greatest <laughs> book I've ever read. Is there anything good about it? Absolutely not. <laughs> um, do you mind if we transition? Yeah. Okay. What I like about this book um, is the theme of anarchy, right? This idea of the disbursement of uh, power and, and <laughs> disbursement of power and doing what is right in our own eyes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, I think it's not stated that way, but those two ideas, dispersion and doing what's right in our own eyes, is uh, is heavy underlaying themes in today's topic. Uh, today we're talking about the famous story, the Tower of Babel. It's a short story. In chapter 11 of Genesis. So I was just going to read it out. Definitely. Um, and then... This is part of the general primordial uh, history yes. creation kind of account. Yeah, the first 11 chapters. Um, right after this, the flood. Yeah, the second half of this chapter is the last genealogy. And then... We're going we're gonna to talk about yeah. how it fits in with the rest of the structure around it afterwards. Mm-hmm. But yeah. yeah, Josh, take it away. Read it. Kay. Nine verses. Yes. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be, we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. <laughs> is it Babel or Babel? Is it Babel? It's like a baby bell. <laughs> in uh, in ba- Babylon, it's Babili. Okay. <laughs> I was right. What the Silly Babili. <laughs> yeah, so this is a pretty famous story, Caleb. This is fun. It, it's a fun story. It is a great story. Because it gets into a lot of... It challenges a lot of, like, archaeology and history on, like, the chronology of yeah, well, it, it's, humanity. It's a... Stru- for literalist readers, it is... Stru- it is it's a difficult one. Yeah. Before we get into it, there actually is... Now that we've read the biblical account, there's another account that kind of mirrors it, maybe. Yep. There yep. isn't a mentioning of a tower, but there is a mentioning of people being loud, not doing what the god wants and they are gathered and they are gathered and then if my memory is right there's actually a break because we don't have the full repaired document Mm -hmm. and it's more in like a priestly tone than like actual in a narrative tone and then the reaction of the god is to confuse their languages yeah so that they would be quiet so that he could continue with his nap and who wrote this Uh, it's babylonians as far as i'm aware yeah it's larger sumerian okay like but because the they're the god mentioned is of a derivative of the Babylonian okay. god. So it's in that very close area 
around Babylon near the Persian Gulf. Which god are we talking about? Enlil? It's either Enlil or Enki, depending okay. on the location. Yeah. Okay. So. Colton, yeah. I read it yesterday. Mm-hmm. And that would be Sumerian or... Sumerian, Babylonian. They're very closely related. Babylonian. But then it would be preserved through Ugaritic texts. Is that right? Not to my understanding. I think they found the document. They found the tablets the separately. Actual, before that. So it wasn't just in the Library of Babylon. It was it was long before. Yeah. Okay, interesting. interesting. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. There's maybe a little parallel. People debate about how strong that parallel is. Eh. I don't know. It's the closest story, and it's close in proximity. Yes. Well, I mean, Shinar is Sumer. Yes. Right, like that's... Yeah, Shinar is It's a, not always one-to-one, because there has been debate about yeah. it, but still. Because Shinar is like a region where in the greater Sumeria. So for people who were in uh, middle school and grade nine history class, we learned about the Fertile Crescent like every year. Oh, really? You know, for like three years in a row. Um, and there's Mesopotamia is what we generally called that area. But the majority of Mesopotamia was two kingdoms of Sumer and Akkadia. Modern day Iraq. Yeah, modern day Iraq. Um, stemming out of the Persian Gulf. Yeah. And the Sumerians were the ones that were closest to the Persian Gulf. Mm-hmm. And in there was a land called Shinar, which was an often contended location between... Cadia and Sumer, mostly Sumerian, and in there was a city called Babylon. And that's where a lot of the most religious fervor came out of. I think, uh, yeah, that place specifically was Mm -hmm. controlled originally by Sumerians when they got in there, and then when the Akkadians moved in, it was split between them, right? Yeah, and Um, the the interesting relationship with Babylon... This is, we'll come into the historicity part. Yeah, with the biblical text is, is that the Babylonians are Semites in that yep. area. Um, the Akkadians were Semites. Yeah. Um, and when groups of them left because of the the saltification of the land, which caused people to have to migrate north, a lot of those people is at the same time that Abraham also left mm-hmm. to go to Canaan. And a lot mm. of the Canaanites are Semites originally from, and that's why their religions. Right. Sure. right. So getting into the historicity then, if we can bring in some historicity, um, that whole region experienced its mass urbanization in 3000 to 3500 BC, which also matches their development, their technological development of these burnt bricks or baked bricks. They are very specifically mentioned in, in the Bible. Yeah. In, in verses, verses two, I believe. Three. 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 But not only that, also the mortar, the specific type of mortar mentioned. Batumen? Mm-hmm. They only show up, the earliest that you see them are in 3000 to 3000 BC. Or 3000 to 3500 BC. Um, just during the, the urbanization. As far as I'm aware. Yeah, yeah. that's the earliest. Uh, and the books are, ex- not the books, the bricks are extremely difficult to break. We actually have quite a few samples of them from archaeology. Um, but that is the earliest that you can go. It's also not like, it, yeah, so they hold up well. It's also not like uh, we have older buildings, too, that don't have this kind of building. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like this just happened to come across at some point. No, the people were here already and then developed this later on. Yes. But the specific books that are, are bricks that are listed in verse 3 um, and are described in verse 3 um, aren't developed until that urbanization phrase, that ur- urbanization era um, yeah. between 3000 and 3500 BC. 
Now, obvious difficulty, difficult part is we already know that other people spoke different languages at that time. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Specifically, the Akkadians and the Sumerians. Just yeah. So just in like people will people will say there's there's a way to say that well. It's talking about the world at large, like in that, like, yeah, the world at large, people in China spoke a different language, but locally they all spoke one language. Yeah. It's not even the case. At the, during that time, when those bricks were invented, in that local area, there were multiple languages being spoken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So. Also, by the time of the writing of Genesis, there would have been a knowledge of the extended world to a certain degree. It wouldn't have gone all the way over to... Uh, it wouldn't have gone all the way over to something like China, but it did go as south as probably Yemen, and as west as probably maybe Sardinia, maybe Spain. Mm, yeah, Spain depends. Yeah, Carthage-ish. Yeah, that's Carthage is a good is a good safe bet. Yeah. yeah, so not a small area. No, there's there's a couple ways to handle this. Do we just want to keep going on that? Sure. Yeah. Then we'll get into what the tower is, what those bricks mean, which is perhaps the more interesting bit. Yeah. Um, the way people that can handle the dating aspect. As far as I could tell, there was there was three that three options that I came across. Did you come across a couple options in your reading there, Colton? Like of how to handle that there the are, discontinuity? There there are a few. There's a like we said already. It's talking about this land, and it's talking specifically about invading outsiders. Mm-hmm. When it's talking about that, we will be dispersed on the land. Is that someone will come in and disperse them? Mm-hmm. However, the Hebrew doesn't line up with that. Um, the text itself, it says it's a sudden event. And they, they usually then ascribe the Tower of Babel to not be uh, a religious tower, but more of a watchtower mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, although it probably had religious significance too. Yeah. But um, it seems that most people, even when they assert that, don't really believe it. Um, yeah. And then they, they argue against it later on. Uh, and this idea that it would be from other people uh, invading it, the 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 passages. Even these people who uh, proclaim this do acknowledge that the Bible is very clear that all the people were here, and the entire world. Kind of I, this idea of all the earth, all the people mm-hmm. is talked about, and it's not talking about invading forces. It's this dispersal from within. Yeah, and it's and it's a divinely enacted event in the biblical text at least well to think that the tower is secular to some degree that it doesn't have a religious connotation comes out of nowhere disagrees with the way that we see historical cities in general yeah so there's three different ways that people harmonize the language difference with the brick dating there's either one that it's using the intended audience so when moses originally wrote it or later scribes later on when they wrote the story it's using their knowledge about temple towers in reference to a myth or like a, a story much earlier on. Yep. Yep. And so it's really just explaining, it's using the terms of, at that point, that uh, contemporary knowledge of buildings, yeah. religious buildings. Um, I'm, not sh- I'm not sold on that one, simply because of how spl- explicit the biblical text yeah. is. But all, all three of these options are a little uncomfortable, to be honest with you. The second one is its divine accommodation of uh, revisionist history for the purposes of an ethnic tribal identity and origins. Yep. And so it's that which was extremely common in that time. People mm. would reconstruct. Like you see with the Greeks. Greeks most like insane have re- revisionist history. You know, they'd have their city-state and their god of their city-state. And their, you go like four centuries ago and, you know, they yep. were demigods. It's like, well, no. Yeah. But revisionist history for cultural identity for tribal history all that kind of stuff in the third option 
which is that the whole the phrase the whole earth had one tongue and the same words means that it's the known earth for one which we talked about yeah but even in that local context is it's talking about a lingua a lingua franca a common language shared among many ethnic groups and and whatnot there's issues with all three of those approaches i've also heard a fourth one okay um this that when it's talking about their languages and then the languages were dispersed so that's talking about because right around 3500 to 3000 is the replacement of the sumerians with the akkadians and their language at that time that they're saying it's that replacement that's dispersing the sumerians who then left and the uh the akkadian takeover so it's this weird amalgamation and confusion but but again that doesn't suit the immediacy presented in the text it also happened over 500 years yeah so So the only the only ways to really match that immediacy within the text and the brick dating as far as i can tell are one of those three theories all of which have their problems unless you're willing to go more with well it's not an immediate divinely enacted event or what's that that the event is not trying to describe something historical you can say that yeah yep there's There's a lot of people who say that yeah well if it's not trying to explain something historical what do you do with the buildings that seem to be ruins of the tower that was once there the identity of the tower might help this question so those specific bricks and the description of the tower given with its head or top in the heavens is very very similar ties to um ziggurats in yes. the mesopotamian world yep. yeah what a cool word it is a very cool word the mesopotamians <laughs> over and over described their ziggurats as reaching into the clouds into the heavens um linking to, the two yeah linking yeah, the gods being the stairway to it all that kind of phraseology yeah, yeah. Yeah, very um, similar to how it's described. I'm here. sure yeah. that if anyone listening to this podcast Google's a cigarette, it would you would already know what it is. Like yes. it's already in your mind when yep. you think of like a priestly tower or even like a Mayan temple looking thing. Yep. It's not from the Mayans at all, but no. that's what it looks. Similarities. Like. If you've yeah. played Age of Empires one, you know exactly what <laughs> we're talking about. If you've played Destiny two and done the Leviathan raid. <laughs> Uh-huh. What a oh reference. Goodness. The entrance is a stairwell up a ziggurat onto what is a ship called the Leviathan, mm-hmm. which is an obvious reference to biblical imagery and Babylonian mm-hmm. imagery. Anyways. So <laughs> what are some of the things that make a ziggurat a ziggurat? There's some debate on it. It's, it looks it, like a wedding cake. Yeah, He's not wrong. Layered. <laughs> it's, it's a layered with several steps, sometimes one, but normally several steps. Um, when you say several steps, you mean staircases. Staircases, yeah. 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 Well, yeah, those staircases would have steps too, but yes. But yeah, I mean, yeah. but I mean, it's a several step as in it would have three or four like layers, like tiers okay. to it, like a wedding cake. Yeah. Um, and it's a specific ratio going up. People debate about. There's a range of ratio of like how far, big is the base compared to how high it goes. Yeah. It appears to be uh, come up separate from. Um, Egyptian uh, Egyptian pyramids. Yes, um, the vast majority of scholars don't see a correlation there. Um, what? Is, no, no, no. It's hilarious because one of them is a funeral, like burial place for a pharaoh, and the other one is. <laughs> don't get me started on Stop. pyramids. Now, there's no <laughs> mummies ever found in the pyramids. Stop. Look it up. I don't. I, I, this podcast won't become a conspiracy podcast. How'd they build it? We don't from know. the top down. <laughs> anyway, moving on. No way, no one. They started with the top. We're, they kept we're trying down. to tackle like, different civilizations' issues with dating. Yeah, which is why I'm saying don't bring up the pyramids. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding, guys. I'm sorry. No, this um, is good. It, it's interesting to how they function. 
the ziggurat because they're yes, referenced right. in a lot of like exterior texts and other religious texts and histor- historical texts but it's not there's nothing listed as what they do we actually have no no record of any sort of religious rite practiced on them and we have no record of like what was practiced at the top what what is going on um judging by the names and the descriptions that people give them is it appears to be a well a link of heaven and earth the two but it's less of humanity going up and all about god coming down or a god coming down and so they would build it up there in hopes that the god would reside on the top so this is this is we're getting into speculation now but this is rather relatively safe speculation. This is this is the type of practices that they would see on holy mountains. Yes. yes. And it appears to be in a flat plain like Sumer, where the gods are up in the sky in the firmament area. You need yeah. something tall to help them get down. I love the idea of, like, the gods are in the sky, and they can't get down. <laughs> um, and so they, they build this big... You need to feed them somehow. Yeah. <laughs> That's your job. Otherwise, they'll get angry. Yeah, yeah, they ordered room ser- service, and now you got to build giant stairs to their. I mean, house. <laughs> ironically, it's kind of kind of is yeah. cool though. <laughs> so you, yeah. on the top, they would likely we're getting into speculation, but on the top, there would likely be some sort of house room place thing, and there would likely have been um, like uh, like in other Mesopotamian cult, uh, religious cultures, they would have had like a virgin priestess that would yes. that would. Yeah reside and keep that house and they would bring food up but other than that like that's safe speculation anything other anything more than that who knows mm-hmm. um but yeah it does it appears as though the building itself functioned for the deity not for the humans which is interesting because in our narrative it kind of looks more like it functions for the humans in in the hebrew though the word that's used is just migdal which just means generic tower. tower. Does someone want to take on, that on? As far as I'm aware, it typically means uh, it's typically used in the Bible to mean watchtower or tower of defense or this idea of a watchful um, high place. Um, this is where a lot of people get the Tower of Babel's actually a watchtower kind of thing, or that's a defensive citadel of some kind, or that that kind of thing. Uh, but as far as I'm aware, it's not exclusively used that way. It can also be used. Um, it, it seems to be an amalgamation that came from the, the word that's very similar to ziggurat in um, the Babylonian speak. Yeah, the, there's argument that it could be etymol. It has, shares an etymological history. Gethol, which means large in Hebrew, and uh, ziggurat or something like that. Yeah, which uh, which also means the the large building or something like yeah. that. I mean, that's another reason you would think it's a ziggurat. It's because it's a Mesopotamian loan word. It's not from the original yeah. Yeah. Hebrew, or else they would just sense. use their word for tower. Yeah, well, the Hebrew does just use their word for tower. They just say tower. Oh, they oh, just say no, Migdal. Like Hebrew word for tower? Well, no, there is, but it's just Migdal, which is just tower. So if it is a loan word. It's not a loan word. Oh. <laughs> we, we, also, we also know that other people, uh, Greek that came yeah, over. Herodotus and Xenophon, I believe. Yeah. It might just be Herodotus. I think. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but they just use generic Greek tower. Because they didn't know how actual, to describe it. Yeah, for actual um, ziggurats that they were looking at. There's like, oh, a that's historical cool. precedent for calling their their religious towers uh t- just a tower mm-hmm. um these ziggurats 
And so it, it's not out of the realm of speculation. Actually, it's probably pretty likely described based off of the context of what's going on here. That is a religious tower and a ziggurat. Now, getting back to the bricks, and then we'll get into how it all kind of plays down in the actual narrative. There, there's also another note that it, the reason for it to be a ziggurat. Okay. God actually comes down. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> in, uh, in what, verse 7? Yeah. Come, let us go down. Interesting. We'll get there. There's more there. Um, getting back to the bricks, those the 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 way that those bricks are made is super expensive. So is the mortar. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very expensive. Fuel to fire bricks at this point in time was hard to make, hard to produce, and hard to keep. Yeah, yeah. in that area, not easy to to actually acquire. That, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a massive power wealth and prestige um thing and it's argued that cities would try to again this is during the urbanization uh stage in that region that cities would try to make a ziggurat to encourage that hey our city is actually houses at least in babylon's case um marduk um and you should look at our wealth and our prosperity. exactly exactly and so yeah. it's protected by our god our God, blah, blah, blah. Up on this tower. Yeah. And so it's to encourage the come live in Babylon mm-hmm. um, or another city that built a ziggurat. Yeah. And that most famous one in Babel, it's Babylon itself, mm-hmm. is is known, known as Eten, Etemenenki. I'm glad you're doing that, not me. Um, et, and then oh, I was looking at pronunciations and it was like Etemenenki, like there's spaces in between yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's the name of the largest known ziggurat um, at 91 meters tall. However, it's not there anymore. It's just the foundation. Yep. But the based off the general ratios of how big ziggurats are based on their foundation and the record of Nebuchadnezzar II himself talking about it, it's 91 meters tall. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. To, for reference, the Great Pyramid of Giza is 130 meters tall yeah yeah <laughs> it's rivaling the great the some of the yeah. world's greatest creations but think about it this way though a ziggurat is also flat on the top so you can walk around yeah so it's that, that tall but then it also has a building on the top not a point yeah so yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and he describes it as being in the description the plaque the uh the the stele of nebuchadnezzar the second describes it as being made of brick as stone and bitumen as mortar um it reaches into the heavens and it is it uses the word tower which is fine now sargon destroys um the original tower that was in babylon yeah and then is it nebuchadnezzar that rebuilds it like is the one that you're just talking about okay okay i just wanted to get my chronology right yeah and it it was called uh ziggurat babili the ziggurat of babylon Oh, oh sorry, really? the ziggurat of Babel. Well, that just seems pretty one to one, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, but it's built after. It, it should also be mentioned that Babel, the word yeah. Babel, probably is a. It sounds like the word for confusion mm-hmm. in Hebrew, yeah. but in, Hebrew, yeah. in Babylonian, it would be the gate of God. Yeah, which only further infers, sorry. Which shows that there is a method of Hebrew poetry happening within 
um, the story of Babel because there's multiple double entendres, there's multiple right. rhyme schemes. Like it's the weird, it's weirdly dense for nine verses, and, and it doesn't seem to connect outside of anything with those other nine verses, which is the reason why you'd think it was taken from another culture and placed and within Colton, the text. Mm-hmm. The whole story is your favorite type of Hebrew literature. Oh yeah, yeah. We're talking about a chiasm. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Not again. My favorite. Colton, do you want to explain what a chiasm is? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not this time. I think we've explained it like seven or eight times at this a point. A chiasm is a poetic structure. <laughs> no, we've, we've explained it's it a, a big lot in arrow. podcast. We'll bring up the big arrow chart again. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it is a chiasm, and the main point um, is that God intervenes. That's it. Right. It's that he comes down and sees the tower that they're building. Yeah. Um, so the center point is actually that he comes down and sees the city and the tower. Yeah. And uh, then from that, he basically undoes everything from the, the built up to it. The prior five verses. Yeah. Five A is the center, um, and then it goes up to eleven nine. Yeah. And in a biblical chiasm, the middle point, mm-hmm. the the part that doesn't have a reflection, is the major theme. And the yeah. point of the story. For sure. And it's, yeah. and the Lord comes down. Yeah. Well, and then the he, he undoes everything that man did. Yeah. Which is incredible. It's funny that it's the Lord comes down because it's, it is the function of the ziggurat. What they want happened to happen by the structure is what they get. Yeah. Yes. But what's interesting is they wanted to go up. And he comes down. I don't know. You would have to make a, a case for why the ziggurat was to go up. Yeah. Because I think once you're up there, you wouldn't come to the conclusion that you can keep going. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, it's not the function of all ziggurats. It's also no, you're not right. a function here, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Um, it doesn't... I think Sunday School kind of taught us this idea that they're building uh, a tower so that they can go either meet God, join with God, enter the heavens, something like... Some kind of siege. Um but yes. the Bible here actually isn't doesn't say that. It says yeah. so that they can make a name for themselves. Yeah. Well, there's, there's other Lest things too. we be spread a, and dispersed across the earth. Yeah. Like, like the gods lived on mountains. So if they built their own yeah. mountain, then they could just live on the mountain. And then they have a name for themselves as a god. And in a mm. time of god kings, that would have been like a huge deal. And it would also make sense why it was built in the middle of a city. Yeah. So that their god king could pretend to be God on this big old mountain. <laughs> and this is right in the middle of the time of god kings as well. <laughs> well yeah. And this yeah. gets... Very popular. This gets into, like, what is the story actually saying? Because there are a few major perspectives. Um, The one that everybody who's a Christian grows up fundamental and has to deal with is the literal creation approach. Mm -hmm. If you take creation as literal and that the flood actually happened, in next up is the Tower of Babel. Mm -hmm. And you have to discuss how humanity moves east and then gets dispersed by god and the formation of languages it also should be mentioned that at the end of the flood narrative they're told to he tells humanity to go and repopulate the earth to go out and spread out yeah um and then here it starts with this idea that they just want to huddle here so they can be safe. well it's it's interesting too because mm-hmm. flood account noahic covenant and then you get uh chapter 10 which is descendants of noah's uh, noah yeah. Um, yeah. And it says these are the descendants of Noah who blah, 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 born into their flood. And then in 1032, it's in these, so the end of that gene, genealogy. Uh, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, genealogies in their nations. And from these nations, they spread abroad 
uh, on the earth after the flood, saying that they separated. Also, in that genealogy, it explains that according to their tongues. So there's languages presented before. It says it three times. Yeah, Yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But the verse just prior to Babel is, and they spread out after the flood, and then Babel starts, and now the whole world had one language, and the people migrated east, and then, where is it, the verse? It says they come together. Uh, Yes. Let us make a name for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed. In the Tower of Babel story, it actually says that they come together. So it's as if they go, they disperse, and they come back. Oh, it's 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 the, sorry. It depends on translation. That's what's going on. That's why I'm not seeing it in the translation that I hooked up, that I have brought up here but it's come let us gather it's the let us gather and create bricks and so right, it's right. presented that they disperse after noah then they come back together to make this the whole world yeah if at least according to that very literal let's say yeah. instead yeah. of literal which means literary the factual let's say a very factual reading very like plain a historical reading. scientific reading yeah yeah um because in that reading uh, in that interpretation, it holds that the broader it holds a broader continuity with the flood, which is that the narrative is understood to take place only a few generations after Noah, yep. where his sons exit the ark, they begin to repopulate, and then uh, within this notion, it's you know almost reasonable to conclude that there's very few amount of, there's very few people on the earth because just flood a couple centuries ago, and they would all speak Noah's tongue. So yeah, it makes sense why they'd speak Noah's tongue, and yep. so it's almost put forward as a as a explaining on, hey, these are why all the nations exist, which is also the following table. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which that also affects, depending on how you read this and the couple through the next few uh, theories of the message of what's going on there, that also plays into that those three ways to harmonize the language ordeal that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, and it's important to note that in the Bible, genealogies express. The reason why they're written differently in different times is partly because they're expressing a theme or a message that's related to the stories next to it. So in the genealogy after the fall, it references that every single one of them dies. But the genealogies after Noah and after the tower don't say that. And it's because God told them in the previous story that if you eat the fruit, you will die. And so it tells you everyone dies except for Enoch. It says he goes with God. Um, and there's a message there. And then in the other one after Noah, it tells you, he's, God says, go spread across the earth, be fruitful, and multiply. And you see all the people spread a- across the earth, have all their children and all their children's children and multiply, mm-hmm. spread across the earth. Mm-hmm. And with the tower of Babel, you see the, yeah, yeah, that yeah. same message. Yeah. But this time it, after, right after Babel, it talks about the creation of the nations. Mm-hmm. The names of the nations that are created from the descendants of, yes. of Noah. Yeah, because of what God does, spreading them across the earth forcefully. Yes, very much so. There's yeah. another interpretation. Yes. Do we, do we want to get into the, to the problems with the literal creation? We can. Interpretation? interpretation? Like, the, like the issues that people have to face with that? We've kind of highlighted we, them. We all. kind of have. It depends on, yeah. like... <sighs> if you try to date it, uh, you have to put it in this 3,500 to 3,000 BC. Unless, unless, like I talked to one of the professors, mm-hmm. and his whole thing is that Moses, or the author, is using the, the, the terms associated with temple towers 
that that local audience would understand. Thus, the bricks and the mortar, the type of bricks and the type of mortar listed. Right. But that does mean that what's being listed in the Bible isn't actually what's being, it's just thrown in there just for them. I don't know if that really does it. Which moves towards more of the primordial history idea of there's thematic elements more than the literal ones, right? Um, no, it would still hold to a literal thing. It would just be that this is so much earlier than you can't rely on the bricks for that dating. Right. It would mean that the time that the story is being told is 3,500 or BC or earlier. But they're using terms from 3,500 BC or earlier so that context, so that those people in that audience understand what type of building it is. But I don't know if that's what the text is really indicating. It seems more like it's like, this is the thing that they're doing for sure. It, it seems yeah. more ingrained in the text than just a flippant kind of yeah. analogy so that, the, so that the contemporary audience of the writer understands. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's what one of the prof- professors told me. What is the purpose of the bricks? And it's just for them to understand. Yeah. Because, I mean, you wouldn't add that in. So it's like, oh, people in the future will be able to date this. It's like, that's not how you think. No, no, we're talking contemporary because at that time. Because if he would have just said tower, they'd be like, oh, there's tons of towers. But if he says these bricks with this mortar, this type of tower, Mm -hmm. the people of that time go, oh, I know buildings that are like that. They're temple buildings that function like this. And God's come down on them. Yes. Yes. Um, But he's using the description of modern buildings at that time to describe something that's way, 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 way back. Yeah. yeah. That's one way of reading it. Yeah. That c- quote-unquote could account for the linguistic issue. Yes. There is a, the second approach, which is, I think the one that I tend to lean towards, is the rebellion against God theme mm-hmm. approach. Um, that as you see, there's the Genesis story, then Noah flood, and then the Tower of Babel. And what you see is in the... You see the Garden of Eden. They're cast out east of the garden when, they, when they're cast out, the east side of the garden, um, away from God, out of his presence. And then Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel, and he is exiled east to the land of Nod, further away from God. And then the people in the beginning of the story, the tower, after the Noah flood, Noah moves around, um, they move and they migrate east and they found a plane in Shinar. And if you locate Shinar, where is that? It's very far east from where Israel would move to the promised land um, later on. But you get this distancing from God after successful stories of sin mm-hmm. and God push judgment pushing them away. Except uh, for Noah. Yes. yes. Where there's nowhere else on the earth, the earth was entirely covered in sin and violence. Yeah. yeah. Which is interesting because there's nowhere else. You can't ex- exile anyone now. Yes. yes. It's everywhere. Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's, it's just yeah. more credence to that. Yeah. Um, and what you get is you get heavy themes in the language of the humans and God in relationship to creation. Um, God says in him to himself... Uh, sorry, let us make man in our image in Genesis one twenty six, mm-hmm. And then in Genesis 3.22 in the fall, he says, behold, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out and take also the tree of life, he banishes him from the garden. And you see in Genesis 11, come, let us make bricks. 
And then again, the humans say, come, let us make a tower and make a name for ourselves and be spread across, lest we be spread across the earth. And then God says, come, let us go down there, confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Mm-hmm. There's this, this continuation of this phrasing in these two stories. Come, let us, behold, let us. Right. Some, this, this thing that is happening, and it's, it's a direct correlation in those stories. And then you see judgment. And people are cast away from God. What do you think? This, sorry. There's kind of a question of the significance of the plural used there. God referring to himself in the plural. That gets further into... Well, yeah, I know we're going to talk about yeah. that in a minute. But the alternate perspective to what you're talking about, sorry to mm-hmm. make this so confusing for the listener, but yes, um, if you're looking for a reason for that, God will refer to himself in the plural to show greatness. Right? That's, that's You're referring the general... to the idea that, that Elohim, plural, yeah. plural in Hebrew can mean both more or more of the same, like greater. Yeah. Like, uh, more the, or greater. Yeah. The example that you should go to for this, because it gets confusing when you talk about God, mm-hmm. um, is uh, the word behemoth, beast, animal. Yeah. If you were to say, if you were to plural, you would add an im, an I am yeah. in English. And that would be the plural to that word. It'd be more beasts. Or great beasts. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it would be an eem or an O-T-H, oath, yeah. right? You put an oath at the end of behemoth, you get behemoth. Mm-hmm. Right, behemoth, the great beast. A great beast. Yeah. And it's that same idea. You either get many beasts or you get a giant one or a greater one. Yeah. Um, and so with the same... One horse-sized duck or... Or, 11 duck sized horses exactly <laughs> that is the image you should be keeping yeah. same with god huh. <laughs> it's, it's either I, hmm. <laughs> uh when you add the em the im to l elohim yeah. you it's greater or gods gods because yeah. the bible will use the same that word elohim yeah. for idols yes so when he says us is he saying a greatness in comparison to humanity then there is the the trinitarian people that will impose new testament onto old testament will say it's a trinitarian reference way before the trinitarian mm-hmm. progressive revelation has occurred mm-hmm. the other alternative is he's speaking in his time and god's tended to have councils yeah the heavenly council yeah divine council heavenly council and and it would be angels or some other yeah oftentimes they would be referred to specifically as uh sons of god which Job, Job does. Which Job does. Which it also gets into Deuteronomy 32. Um, yeah. Which is the the big passage that people have to contend with. Um, with this idea. Sorry, let me get to it here. And not only is this interesting, because this refers to this story. Mm-hmm. The Tower of Babel. So in the uh, Deuteronomy 32 is the story of the, 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 the death song of Moses. Um, and he says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the, God, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his heritage. And then you get in Psalm 82, you get a reference to God is sitting amongst the divine council, and he challenges these gods that he gave dominion over nations, these elders, um, over the earth. And he's like, you're... you're Horrible. Like, these people need help, and you're not doing anything. You're sinning, and you will die like humans. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, it's a really interesting story. And so you get this, let us go. Let us make men in our image. Yep. 
all of them refer yeah but, but just to be clear in those in those phrases uh, because of how the hebrew language works yes it's in the us the plural part is tied to the verb yes. elohim is not in that sentence yes is it's the verb us myself and many others mm-hmm. are doing the verb right it's so, more focused on the doing than it is the people who are doing it um I don't even know if I go that far. Maybe I don't. I don't know. But I'm just saying that yeah. the phrase Elohim is not in that. Yes. yes. Right. And in those passages, you should always note it's God will say, "Come, let us," right? But then He's the one doing it. So it says He goes down, not Him and with others. He goes down. It's like a, a lot of people point to Trinitarian ideas there because yeah. Well, and here would be the other thing, right? Is like for us this podcast, we would say we should do book reviews. And then I go write a book review. It's this. It's the same idea. It's like council gathering its mind to do yeah. whatever. And it, God is always in charge. The Elohim are not the other Elohim in the council are created beings. They're the sons of God that God judges. They're way below him. They're as below him as humans are. So Much like every kind of, kind of Bible interpretation, there are disagreements with the heavenly council yes. idea. There are many. We don't have time to get into it. Yeah. yeah. It, it is worth pointing out that the majority of the arguments against it at all in the Jewish mm-hmm. religion c- come from, I would argue, ignorance of the of early Jewish uh, Israelite religion pre-Christian. Yeah. Um, and that, none of that, that uh, the divine council idea, none of that is needed for the Tower of Babel story to present the rebellion message. Um, yeah. But I think the rebellion message, personally, I think that matches across Genesis 1 through 11 and then into the purpose of why Abraham is brought up. Mm-hmm. See, okay, this gets into wow. something that I find interesting. Yeah. And I talked to a couple of professors about it, and they're like, meh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> One of them was more forgiving than the other. Um, ziggurats are focused on basically uh, a, a building that forces the relationship with God, not forces, but entices to such 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 a way that you establish the relationship with your God. Yes. Right. And that is what the purpose of a ziggurat is. That's, that's the purpose of a ziggurat. However, in the Tower of Babel, it seems more all about the human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? And so when you hold those two things in tandem, and also when you have this, people really like to, people continually understand it as almost like an assault on heaven, almost. Like they're going to yes. go up and attack the gates of heaven. They are going to become gods themselves. They are going to, this may be a stretch. <laughs> I don't know if it's being presented, but I find it interesting that if man-made religion is presented in Genesis 11, it's man-made religion. It's seen as both an assault on heaven and all that kind of stuff. And yet in Genesis 12, you have God approaching Abraham. God made religion. Right. And so I see a thing there. Yeah. Um, I think it's cool. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, what's interesting is they use the same phrase as when God makes man, right? He says, come, let us make man in our image, Mm -hmm. right? And then here they say, come, let us make a tower and make a name for ourselves. This like. And why do they do it? Specifically to counteract what God does or told them to do, which is to scatter. So yeah, the salt idea we have more weight than I thought it originally did. Uh, <laughs> this idea, they go up so that they can become great enough that God won't be able to scatter them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the Tower of Babel doesn't just leave us in the Old Testament. There is heavy themes to a very significant part of the gospel story. This is a part I had not thought about until yeah. we started doing research on the episode. Yeah. 
honestly, until like a couple minutes before the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting, because it was at our school that it was like blasted at me. Yeah, the teacher talks about it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's, every once in a while. Man, I've been asleep then. I've seen it in in the majority of of, um, biblical theologies, which really like themes and following patterns. Yeah. Yeah. Because monkey sees pattern. Yep. Um, if they're going to deal with heavenly city or language at all or the redemption of all humanity, they'll and be referenced. All nations are brought yeah. together. Yeah. They'll reference the starting of origin, of or the origin place of dispersing nations and people groups and all that. That's the Tower of Babel. Where that comes together, Acts 2, when Paul preaches and or Peter preaches and all those people come back to Christ, that listing of nations. Obviously, there's the redemption of multiple languages. And not just the redemption, but the use of multiple languages. Yeah. Thus, the, the let's say, the, ben- the, the although the consequence of multiple languages are, is still re- relevant, Acts 2 almost turns that into a, into a tool. Also, what I find interesting about that story is the Tower of Babel at the way beginning of the story of the Bible is a story about humans trying building a tower that is a link between heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. And this begins with a story where God himself creates a link between heaven and earth mm-hmm. for humanity to ascend into divine nature. Ooh, theosis. <laughs> Just, oh boy, okay. Hey, it's what Hebrews says. Whatever that looks like, I don't know. <laughs> We're Protestants here, so... Yeah. It should also be mentioned that them going up to the uh, upper room is not a correlation with... No, no, no. no. It's, but it is funny. The it being, is funny. Being <laughs> brought up with Christ in his nature to be with God. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that's the basis for Acts 2. Yeah. When the nations are gathered together symbolically and God unifies them with a language thing. When, yeah. When Peter and the rest of the disciples come out... And speak in the languages of many of the other ethnicities that are there. Yeah. And they're like, how do these people know this this language? And he's like, and then Peter gives his big speech. This is the day of Pentecost yeah. when the Spirit comes down upon them. That kind of thing. Yeah. There are, there are also yes. connections with um, what I call the Borg cube coming down out of heaven. The new heaven in Jerusalem. Yeah, dude. The the new city. I, I have no idea how you're gonna wrap this around. Yeah, but no. Continue. Oh, well, it's it's just there's there's thematic elements again. Biblical theolo- the biblical theologians are like monkey sees pattern. Um, God's heaven, God's city, yeah. not the the city of rebellion. Yes, but God's city comes down, yep. right? Yeah. And it's where God resides with His people in the New Jerusalem. Yes. It also should be mentioned that. Especially in these early stories, like around uh, Noah or here in Babel, cities are typically mentioned to be bad things. Mm-hmm. It's not really until Jerusalem where it's kind of a good thing. Yeah, and like quasi. That end, well, and the first hint that you get it's going to be a good idea is in Ezekiel when he talks about God says, I will gather all the nations and their cultures and the people and their food and the uh-huh. ports and the blah, yes. blah, blah, and it'll be awesome and blah, blah, blah. And then you get the and then Borg cube. Well, you, get Zach- the you get Zachariah. You get yeah. Zachariah talking all about it. And then Borg cube comes down in Revelation. And- <laughs> you keep describing it as a Borg cube. It's so funny. For the uninitiated, the Borg cube is... <laughs> no. Le- I need to do a whole biblical theology Deep here quickly. Star Trek lore now. Biblical theology of the Borg cube. <laughs> yeah. So when God b- made the temple, the most holy place... D- designed by God told Solomon was 30 cubits by 30 cubits, which is f- 
by 30 cubits, which is a 40 foot, 45 foot perfect cube made of gold. That is where the Holy of Holies was. That's the Holy of Holies. And it was a curtain with gold woven in. Just It wasn't a it was perfect a gold cube. <laughs> I was just going to put that out. No, 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 in the temple. Yes, it was walls lined with gold. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, it's a gold cube. Um, and then what you get is, in Revelation, described the whole city, not the temple in the city, because there is no temple in the city. The whole city is a... 1800 cubits by 1800 cubits by 1800 cubits yeah. walled city which is those dimensions don't work on earth but that's fine because it's a theological image presented in apocalyptic literature to describe that the whole of humanity is in the holy of holies mm -hmm. yeah. those that are saved yeah but it's just People draw draw connections between uh, the unholy city that scatters, yeah. the yeah. holy city that unifies, yeah. which all the languages and tongues. And it should be known that the yeah. God's, God's temple, as a counter to the ziggurat, the ziggurat was this uh, place, this link between the heavens and the earth that you would, that the God would like come down. But the temple was the place where God resided with his people. Yes. He didn't, he was in permanent connection with his people. Yes. Well, what do you, what do you mean by permanent? That was his footstool. His presence was there. Okay. Until he leaves. <laughs> because they were sinful. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But as a counter, he said, like, no, I'm not, like, like I'm, in, I'm in the midst of my people. But in Babel, because they're sinful, he gets them to leave. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So I just Googled how big is the city of God, and it's, oh, it's how big is heaven in miles? <laughs> it's yes. one of the questions that comes up. That's very funny. Yeah. Four. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry, 1,800 miles by 1,800 miles by 1,800 miles. Uh, it's actually 1,400. 1,400, cat. Sorry. A bit smaller. Yeah. It still goes, it? like, into the atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. The, dude, it might reach Mars, okay? Uh, <laughs> I'm joking. The yeah, moon is 3,500,000 kilometers. Flat earthers just... Hey. hey. <laughs> I'm trying to get to the Borg cube in the Bible. <sighs> anyway, so that's an interesting pattern. I don't know. A biblical theologians really like it. The measurement is t stadia, and it's 12,000 stadia cubed. In translation into miles, 1,400. Yeah. It's actually 1,380. <laughs> Man, we're just wanting to fight each other. Okay, so back to Pentecost. There is the connection between the unification of language, but not in the, like, now everybody speaks the same words, but in the, like tongues as presented mm -hmm. they're speaking the language yep. um of all the people that are present yes. and all the people are still confused these guys are drunk <laughs> they must Ironically. be drunk but they're all speaking our languages what the heck's going on yeah yeah then you get into the whole idea of like if you're confused when you hear the thing then that means judgment is on you and when you're when you don't hear the confusion then you're fine can you elaborate more on that i've heard this but i need in joel's passage those that um that that don't understand the words being said uh the ones that are going what are they saying um they're the ones that denied christ and so the fire of the holy spirit is judgment on them but life for, for the, the ones that ah, understand yes okay yeah i see it that's interesting yeah. eh? i i don't quite i don't know how well that translates i mean i'm i'm super like reducing the whole it would take this is all that joel needs <laughs> the, the book the book yeah. not the person not me
Yeah, I mean, like, it's sad how much Joel gets overlooked other than that one passage. Yeah, the dream dreams and visions. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to vision visions. It's a big yeah, deal. That's, I mean, I don't know what else to say about Tower of Babel other than Nimrod, and that could go for hours. I like calling people Nimrods. Uh, yeah, honestly, there's, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of, like, you could do a deep dive on this and find yourself in so many rabbit holes all over the place. You can do that with any part of this part of Genesis. You're right, but, like, conspiracy theorists really like Tower oh, yeah. Babel. I really stay like Tower Babel. Stay away from any political like arguments or like group discussions about how the war of Iraq was about the tower of Babel. Just get away from well, it that. It wasn't about the tower of Babel. It was about the Stargate at the bottom of the <laughs> Oh, dude, hang on. We need a Star Wars reference. We got Star Trek. We got Stargate. <laughs> I almost got into pyramids for a second. What's going on? Um, this, this is, Hey, no, the Jedi temple looks a lot like a ziggurat. Stop. It does. Well, it is a cigarette. It doesn't look like anything like a cigarette. It looks, yeah. What do you, of course it does. It's got a stairwell going right up to the entrance where the cool dudes with the lasers live. <laughs> oh, no, that's the Sword of Fire. Yeah. Oh, anyway. And then Anakin is a Malak reference. Joel, can oh, you just yeah. end the podcast? <laughs> I, I was having fun. <laughs> Have fun talking about social media, please. Yeah, uh, this has been another episode of the Second Rate Saints podcast. Uh, this week we had a lot of t- fun talking about Tower of Babel. If you have something you'd like us to talk about, send us an email at secondratesaints at gmail.com. Um, that's where you can get a hold of us most of the time, or you can just go straight to our website. Uh, thanks again to uh, the nameless listener who uh, had suggested Anarchy and Christianity. We like uh, taking your guys' suggestions and reading them and reviewing them. So, yeah, if you guys could just give us a like and a comment, then uh, we'd really appreciate that. Thanks for listening again, and this has been Second Rate Saints. 